Hey everybody, Chibi here. Before we get into today's conversation, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you. Thank you for showing us that you care about poetry and getting to know more poets across this country. If you've liked what you've heard so far, please make sure to hit that subscribe button, share these episodes, tell a friend, rate and review us wherever you can. And if you want to know more about the things and the initiatives that we are putting in place, you can look us up on Facebook at The Blah Poetry Spot. That is B-L-A-H, The Blah Poetry Spot on Facebook or Write Art Out on Instagram. That's W-R-I-T-E-A-R-T-O-U-T, Write Art Out. Thank you so much, and without further ado, let's get into today's conversation. Boom. Welcome, 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 everybody. We are so glad uh, that you are joining us for another edition of the blah poetry spots presents words and shit where we have a conversation with a poet every week so that you can get to know the person behind the poetry my name is chibi so excited to be your host here my co-host joined again by the illustrious as always so shiny so smooth Boom. Welcome, welcome everybody we're so glad hey, uh, that you are joining us for another hey, 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 hey. so um so fresh and so smooth or fresh clean clean or i don't know all the beautiful things, really. All of the stuff, yeah. Um, I don't usually shave for uh, a, a virtual audience, but today I did because mm. um, it was time. That's what it came down to. It was time. <laughs> it was. It was. It was over. Overtaking the rest of your gorgeously round face. Yeah, yeah, and it was making the mask kind of difficult, you know. And that we got to worry about that now. Mm-hmm. About and masks. Dandruff be a thing. Uh huh. In the new world. Oh yeah. <laughs> Well, it's good to see you looking so fresh, looking so fine. We are excited to bring in uh, this poet. Uh, Eddie, who do we got on deck tonight, as if we don't know? Well, that's actually more than just a poet. Uh, this is David Bowles, who's written more than just poetry. He's actually written uh, some, some great work. He's a Mexican-American poet, author, translator from South Texas, where he teaches at the University of Texas, Rural Grande Valley. He has written several titles, most notably the award-winning Flower, Song, Dance, Aztec, and Maya Poetry, The Smoking Mirror, and They Call Me Huero. They never call me that, but they call him Huero. His work has also been published in multiple anthologies, plus venues such as School Library Journal, Bookbird, Knowledge Quest, Rattle, Translation Review, and the Journal of Children's Literature. I don't see Medium on there, but I've, I've read him on Medium, so that should be in there. Mm-hmm. And in 2017, he was inducted into the Texas Institute of Letters. I don't think we've ever had anybody who's in that, have we? I, not to my knowledge. So it just sounds right. Like so this is a chingon. We have a chingon with us, mm-hmm. a literary chingon. Anyone you will. Belt buckle. You won't see it on the show, but he probably <laughs> exactly. David. Uh, so David, are you there? Where are you at? There he is. I'm here. I was hiding behind the virtual yeah. black screen. I, I know David because of my publisher, Flower Song Press. Uh, Edward Vidaure, uh, and there's been, we've been, uh, we've actually read at a few events together. That's right. Uh, Ali, and uh, I think here in San Antonio. AWP. Yes, one time in San Antonio. That's right. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Where are so, you, uh, welcome you, to our show. Where are you joining us from, David? I am joining you from Donna, Texas, five miles from the border with Mexico. So here I am. Yeah. En la mera frontera. En la mera, mera frontera. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We got three Rio Grande Valley 
veterans in this conversation right now. Uh, I'm sure. Yes. I'm sure we'll hit on that topic uh, at some point in time. But right now, because he's known you, he's known your work for a very, very long time. I just met you 20 minutes ago, and I can't wait to hear uh, you perform some of your work. So we're going to hand it over to you, uh, David, and uh, please take it away. Okay, cool. So I think what I'll do is I'll start um, reading from uh, this one just with the shiny little metal. They call me Widow. It is a novel in verse um, written in the voice of a 12-year-old Mexican-American kid, a Chicano kid, um, on, in, on the border, living down here and being a seventh grader and, and Trump's America. So that's something something special. And the book has really resonated with people. Um, it's my best-selling book. It's won nearly a dozen awards. It's, it's um, a real blessing. And so I want to read a little bit from it to you. Border Kid. It's fun to be a border kid, to wake up early Saturdays and cross the bridge to Mexico with my dad. The town's like a mirror twin of our own, with Spanish spoken everywhere just the same, but English mostly missing till it pops up like grains of sugar on a chile pepper. We have breakfast in our favorite restaurant. Dad sips café de olla while I drink chocolate. Then we walk down uneven sidewalks, chatting with strangers and friends in both languages. Later, we'd load our car with Mexican Cokes and Hoya, avocados and cheese, tasty reminders of our roots. Waiting in line at the bridge, though, my smile fades. The border fence stands tall and ugly, invading the Carrizo at the river's edge. Dad sees me staring, puts his hand on my shoulder. Don't worry, mijo. You're a border kid, foot on either bank. Your ancestors crossed this river a thousand times. No wall, no matter how tall, can stop your heritage from flowing forever like the Rio Grande itself. This next poem is called Checkpoint. On a road trip to San Antonio for shopping at Six Flags, Dad slows the car as we approach the checkpoint. All those Border Patrol in their green uniforms, guns on their belts. Mom clutches los papeles, our passports, her green card. She's from Mexico, a resident, not a citizen, by her own choice. At the checkpoint, a giant German shepherd sniffs the tires as the agents ask questions, inspect our trunk. My little brother squeezes my hand, afraid. My rebel sister nods and says her yes sirs. But I can tell that she's mad, the way her eyes get. We're innocent, sure, but our hearts beat fast. We've heard stories, bad stories. A cold nod and we're waved along, allowed to leave the borderlands, made a limbo by uncaring laws of people a long way away who don't know us, a quarantine zone between white and brown. I feel angry, just like my sister, but I hold it tight inside. We just don't understand why we have to prove every time that we belong in our own country where our mother gave birth to us. Dad, like he can feel the ba bad vibes coming from the back seat, tells us to chill. It won't always be like this, he says, but it's up to us to make the change, especially those jovenes, you and your friends. Eyes peeled, stay frosty, learn and teach the truth. Right now, what matters is San Antonio. We'll take your mom shopping, go swimming in the Texas-shaped pool, eat a big dinner at Tito's, order anything you want. And he slides his favorite CD into the battered radio. Los Tigres del Norte start 
belting out La Puerta Negra. Pero la puerta ni cien candados van a poder detenerme. Not the door. Not 100 locks. Ah, uh, my dad, he always knows the right song. Skip ahead a little bit. I promise you that not all of the book is is dark and somber, but you know, 12-year-old Mexican kid in Trump's America, you're gonna bump into some of this stuff. And um, one of the great things about being a Mexican-American kid is all the storytellers and, and historians that you have in your family, like in this particular poem, Uncle Joe's History Lessons. My Uncle Joe is the family chronicler, a cowboy philosopher, our local expert in Mexican-American history. He lived through most of it. One day, we head to the river, set up chairs in our favorite spot, a shady refuge at the edge of his ranch. When I was a chavalito, he says, watching the water flow, didn't nobody teach us about our gente, about the revolucion. They made the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo sound like a blow struck for democracy instead of the violent lab grand it, the lab land grab it was. This should be Mexico, mijo. The border, it crossed right over us. Es más, when I was in elementary, they didn't let me call myself Jose. It was Joseph this, Joseph that. So I became Joe. And forget using Spanish. They caught you saying a single word, and bas, you got smacked. Spellbound and angry, I asked Uncle Joe if that's why he never went to college, even though he's so smart. Pussy. Also, nobody believed in me. Fíjate, when I was in seventh grade, like you, counselor asked me what I wanted to be. A lawyer, I said. That white lady almost laughed in my face. What? No, Joseph. You should go to a technical college. Become a mechanic. No shame in hard work. Vieja racista. Still, I kept at it. Studied hard. But in high school, turned in a paper for world history about the conquista. I worked so hard on it. Did research, revised, and edited. Todo ese jale. Know what I got? An F. I'm not kidding. Teacher said it was too good. Obviously plagiarized. After that, pues, I gave up. Gatekeepers weren't letting this Chicano through. Then he leans forward and looks at me, super serious, his eyes suddenly red with rage or sadness or hope. Even the chachalacos go quiet, like they're listening too. Don't you let them stop you, chamaco. Push right through them gates. It's your right. You deserve a place at that table. But when you take your seat, don't let it change you. Represent us, bijo, all the ones they kept down. You are us. We are you. Um, I have a, an earlier book of poetry called Shattering and Bricolage that has my broken up, put together face on the front of it. And um, this has got a lot of, uh, definitely not as um, narrative poetry aimed at such a young audience. Um, and one of the poems was actually quoted on Criminal Minds. And it's one of my favorite poems. And it's the poem that got a lot of people on Facebook really excited, pinging me, hey, David, you were quoted on Criminal Minds. So I'm going to read it from that one. It's called Kintsukuroi. And, and I don't know if you all are familiar with what Kintsukuroi is, but it's that um, Japanese art form where they take an already crafted, and glazed, and fired vase or bowl or whatever, and they break it, and they put the pieces back together um, using silver or gold or whatever, and you can see the seams. Kind of like Gloria Saldua's 
Koyushauki process, the way I think of it, which is kind of what this entire book is about, since inspired by Anzaldua. Like a hammer, deliberate or careless jostling child, life tumbles us from safe, oblivious heights to smash to shards and scattering dust. Yet, though shattered, we may still have the fortune to feel warm, compassionate hands collect the fragile fragments of our broken selves with care that glitters brighter than even the purest gold. They join the misshapen bits together, leaving a, leaving a webbing fretwork of shimmering seams that forever remind us when wounds are healed by love, the scars are beautiful. Um, and then uh, I want to go back to talking about the border. Um, Eddie, I think you probably heard me read this one. Um, and Brownsville, I can't remember if you, were, if, if, if you were there when I read it. This is called uh, Let Me Bury My Son near Brownsville, 1915, the height of La Matanza. On my knees, I beg for the love of God. Mr. Lawman, let me bury my son. They say he's a traitor, bandit, thief. My boy was only working at his uncle's side. We said nothing when your people took our land, bought up our ranches, pushed us south of town. We cast our eyes aside, picked up spade and hoe to work the soil where once our cattle grazed. Don't strip this final dignity away, good sir. Mr. Lawman, let me bury my son. All of you afraid of that plan hatched by rebels to cut you down as one. This isn't Mexico. We're Tejanos, faithful to our state. We seek no revolution. Federal troops and rangers far outnumber these brown-skinned Spanish-tongued neighbors. A train has been derailed, I know. Bandits bolted back across the Rio Grande. Enraged, the troops return to find my son at work with his uncle and others on one of your farms. Those calloused hands, would they ever lift a rifle, ever curl around your neck? My son's hands, even free of dirt, are not white. Evidence enough for you. Each hanged. A mother's grief at the loss of her son. Bereft, I traveled to that tall, bleak mesquite, wept to see my brother dead, howled to see my son. Rangers laughed. They would not let me cut him down. His limbs swelled tight against his clothes. They would not let me cut him down. The sun beat down and it blacked his flesh. They would not let me cut him down. The flies like smoke then wreathed him dark. They would not let me cut him down. The vultures swarmed and pecked and tore. They would not let me cut him down. Still he sways from that noose, creaking in the wind. There are rites we must perform. Our God commands. Think of all these spirits curdling in shame. Think of vengeance brewing slow in the sandy soil. Show me that you're human. Even now there's time. By everything that's holy, let me bury my son. And I think I'll stop there so we can chat on that can note. All of those secrets. Yes, tell you the secrets. Do we have applause? <laughs> I will applaud myself. Yes. All right. Um, <laughs> no, we applaud you. We applaud you too. Thank you. The first question I have to ask is um, what's it like having your poem quoted on Criminal Minds? But 
It's wild. Yeah, I mean, that's like, you know, you get the Purba Prey, you get the Tomás Rivera, you know, you get inducted in Texas Suit Letters, but then you get fucking quoted on Criminal Minds. You're like, I made it, damn. <laughs> Did they, no, that, did they call you ahead of time, or no? I have. I, I think they might have contacted the uh, publisher, um, which is a is Lamar University Press. Um, you know, you know how poetry is. You get you get it published where you can, <laughs> um, and I think they may have asked them for permission, but the editor didn't let me know, and so it was it was a surprise. It was a, you know it's a nice surprise, um, and it it is now like the my most quoted poem. Like you literally can go on Twitter and just type in "When wounds are healed by love, the scars are beautiful," and you'll see thousands and thousands and thousands of posts where the people have quoted me, um, and it's like all over. And so it's nice. It you know. It's 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 a poem I, I really like. It kind of sums up something that I think is really important. Um, a lesson that I learned from Gloria Santua's, um, you know, Borderlands, and um, uh, something I dedicated an entire book to. So the fact that people are, you know, kind of virally sharing that makes me feel good. It's mm. what you hope that. that and the world. This... Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know how poetry is. Poetry. Um, is not the the best paying um, of the genres, and definitely they call me widow because it's a novel in verse um, meant for younger readers has done much much better. Um, it also just came out at the right time. Um, you know, Trump had just been elected, and that year the um, the conference of the National Council of Teachers of English happened in Atlanta, like within ten days of the election, and a couple of scholars of poetry and poets that I know were doing a presentation to teachers at, at this conference. And the teachers afterwards came up to them and said, hey, we have students in our classroom who are beside themselves with anguish. They don't know what to do. We've got Latinx kids who have undocumented uh, relatives who are frantic and are afraid of what might happen, that their loved ones might be deported. We have Muslim students who are worried about the Muslim ban. We have African-American students who are worried about the, the cruel things that Trump has said down the, the years about black people. Um, and we need, we need a, an anthology of, of poetry that will help these kids that will allow them to like work their way through it. And so they put together an anthology like just in a couple of months, they reached out to me and asked me to contribute a poem. And it was that first one I read Border Kid because of this anthology that was created in response to, to Trump's being elected and the emotional stress it was causing kids. Um, my poem Border Kid was published there. It was reprinted in Journal of Children's Literature. I read it when I was inducted into the Texas Institute of Letters. And that was when Cinco Puntos Press um, offered me a contract on the basis of that one poem. They said, can you write another 40 poems in a kid's voice? And I said, yes, I can. They go, because we, we want to publish that book. We think it's important. Yeah. And they weren't wrong. Um, so, you know. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's, let's talk about really it. Then that's the secret to getting published by Cinco Puntos. <laughs> Get inducted into Texas Two Letters, yeah. <laughs> getting on Criminal Minds. <laughs> getting on Criminal Minds. Uh, let's talk about Call Me Weddle for a, a moment. Um, because like you said, it's a story about, you know, a 12 year old boy living in Trump's America, right? Yeah. Uh, and I'm curious, again, because the point of the show is to get to know the person behind the poetry, how much of this is a memoir and how much of this is fiction, you know? Sure, that's a, that's a fair question. I would say about 30% of it is pulled from my own life. I'm 50 
So I was like Weddell's agent in 1982. And then he also is thinking about things when he was younger. So I'm pulling from my childhood and teen years in the Rio Grande Valley, but in the 70s and 80s, time was you know, obviously much different um, then. But there are a lot of incidents and family relationships that I was able to pull into the present. And then I took another 30% probably from my son's life. So my son is now 19. When, when I was writing this, he was younger, he was still in high school. And so just thinking about his experiences as a Gen Z Mexican-American kid living on the border, right? Um, and then it's from the lives of other kids that I've taught. And then I, that, another 40% is just stuff that I made up. Um, I think that it was important to me because I'm writing about, I mean, the title kind of gives it away. They call me Huero. The book centers on what it's like to be a light-skinned, Mexican-American. Um, uh, some people get upset with me when I say a white Latino because they think that's like a, a horrible thing to, to call yourself. Um, but there, there's privilege attached to being light-skinned in, in our culture, clearly. And there's clearly a lot of colorism and so forth. And, and so being 12 and coming to grips with that, like, you, like Wedo doesn't want to be light-skinned. He wishes he would, were dark like his father. It's the same way I felt. I would like look at my dad's skin. Um, differently from Wedo, like my mom is white and my dad comes from a Mexican-American family my mom comes from a white family so it was even weirder for me because like uh, um, I had one cousin on my mom's side I hardly spent any time with them I spent all the time with the Mexican-American family I had on my dad's side but I was different from everybody else um, being lighter skin um, and so you know the, the, the way I felt about that I wanted to put that across because it's it's a common feeling for light-skinned people and coming to grips with the fact that you know you don't like it you didn't ask for the privilege but you can't renounce the privilege I, you, I don't know if you guys saw me like raging about this on Twitter for the past two days basically trying to teach all of Mexico like to stop acting like there's no racism in Mexico but um like you have to come to terms with it. You have to say, okay, yes, there's privilege. I have privilege. I can't renounce my privilege. So what do I do about it? Well, what you do about it is you become anti-racist and you use your privilege uh, to shield other people and to fight, to pull down the system that has given you privilege that other people don't have. And, and like when you have to learn that when you're 12, that's hard. You know, you just want to play and shoot bottle rockets at your cousins. Like, one of my favorite poems in the, the book is a Bottle Rocket Battle. Um, so, you know, yeah, I, I felt it was necessary to pull from my own life to, because my experience going through that w had to inform what Wedo's going through. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, uh, yeah. what, what's interesting about that is, like, I've heard so many stories of brown kids or darker, darker skinned kids in Mexican-American communities who are, uh, as children, are trying to wash away the dirt from their arms yeah i know think that it's that they're too dark yeah it is and, horrible and you're saying that you wanted to be darker yeah 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 i did want to be darker um i i didn't like being different from my cousins and from my dad and so forth and i i you know it was it, it's a weird thing i mean i guess there's not all light-skinned people feel that way i'm sure there are plenty of light-skinned Mexican-Americans who are like, hell yeah, thank God I'm light-skinned, especially right now with Trump. Uh, this is a really good disguise. But, um, you know, depending on the time you live in, um, it could be worse or better. So, I mean, it's an interesting perspective for, you know, this, this character, this 12-year-old to have, because, like, I remember, like, I grew up uh, on the border in Laredo, 
you know, and I'm of a lighter skinned Latino. And still like growing up in my teenage years, I wanted to be even whiter, you know, like I have curly hair. So I would constantly like straighten my hair. I tried to stay out of the sun, you know, because I wanted to be yeah, yeah. part of America because it felt like embracing my Mexican side was just going to further alienate me. And it wasn't until much later that I came to embrace my culture and my history, you know, despite my skin tone. Um, so how was it for you, you know, like as an adult to write this 12 year old's perspective, right? How do you, how do you? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it was, I mean, it was tricky for me because um, I did go through what you're talking about. See, um, my dad eventually abandoned us. Um, he got in trouble with the law. He drove us away from the valley all the way to South Carolina, where we had lived for a couple years earlier when he was in the Navy when I was really young. Um, and like, and then just like abandoned us here. And so when I came back and my mom got a divorce, I was estranged from that side of my family. I was no longer in contact with the Mexican American part of my family. And because I felt so much resentment towards him, it was easier for me to double down now on the white side of my identity and not correct people when they just assumed, especially with a last name like Bulls, that, um, uh, that I was white. And, um, you know, people would say something in Spanish around me and I'd be like, wait, te entiendo. And, and they'd be like, oh, you speak Spanish? And I'd be like, well, see. And they're like, well, you don't give any indication that you're Mexican-American because I wasn't trying to advertise it. I was hurting like in a major way. Like this, this man that I had loved so much had like done like the worst thing. I mean, I, I, I considered suicide many times. I, I started like, you know, drinking and just doing a bunch of stupid stuff when I was a teenager and in my early college years. Um, so, I mean, I understand that, that impulse, but the impulse came when I felt like the culture that I love so much was rejecting me. And I was like, wow, okay, well, fuck you then, you know? And um, it was kind of probably like what happened to you. It took me when I was an adult, taking certain classes at college, beginning to read Mexican American authors, stuff like that, for me to start coming back around to embracing my Mexican American identity again, after having, you know, spent easily five years yeah. trying to pretend like I wasn't Mexican-American. You know? It's kind of, it's kind of the interesting part of like, you know, growing up in the Valley, you almost forget that there is a white America happening outside of this bubble, right? When you grow yep. up, yep. like 98% is, like you said in your poem, you know, this intermix of Spanish and English, not get it, you know, everything is just same old, same old. And it isn't until leaving that that other people inform you that you are different. And when I say leaving that, I mean in both directions, going north yep. into America and going south into Mexico, visiting family. I remember them saying like, you have such a I viene el pocho. Spanish <laughs> accent. And I was like, do I? Tengo acento? I mean, yeah, we do. You, you had a South Texas accent, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm kind of curious, those books that you... Uh, had that kind of got you back in touch with your heritage. Um, what were some of those books, some of those courses? Yeah, so I mean, there were two key courses that like really kind of like woke me up when I was 19. Um, um, one of them was uh, an, in an introduction to anthropology course in which we studied um, like Aztec and Mayan mythology. And I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> because, you know, you, you go to school in Texas 
and I, it's changed a little bit now but like when you and i were like younger you go to school and they teach you about the greek gods and the roman gods and the norse gods whatever and you're like living fucking you know just a few minutes from mexico and you never learn about a single mesoamerican god ever and so like that that class just like blew my mind i was like holy shit because i love mythology and it just never even occurred to me to think about the indigenous um sacred stories of mexico and um so that was one thing and the other one was in a world literature course get this a world literature course we read house on mango street by sandra cisneros why in a world literature course when she is an american author because (laughs) In 1989, that was the only place that Sandra Cisneros was going to get her fucking work read was inside, uh, you know, in this kind of like really like uh, sneaky kind of way of easing her into the curriculum. Um, thank God things have changed. And and then I, re- I realized, oh, my God, wait a minute, Mexican-Americans write because I wanted to be a writer, but I had become convinced in high school that it was my the white side of me that was going to get me into writing because that was the part because all the writers that I read and that we were assigned in school were all white people um you know non uh latinx white people and um so reading sense of snows then got me interested in i started like reading every mexican american thing i could put my hands on rudy anaya stuff and um tomas rivera and just like everything that i could find at the time um america paredes just everything um and those two things plunged me down this rabbit hole um, of like beginning to study how the the folk tales that my grandmother Garza had told me when I was a little kid, how they connected to to Mexico, these borderland stories connected to Mexico, how that connected to pre to to colonial New Spain, and how that also got connected to pre-Columbian Mesoamerica, um, and eventually I ended up studying like Nahuatl and translating from it, and it just I mean it was this it's then, then this crazy crazy ride and. I've noticed this, that sometimes, um, I don't know what it is about being like a light-skinned mestizo, you know, a white Latino or whatever you want to call us, um, where when we finally come around to embracing our identity, like we kind of like maybe go overboard, <laughs> we go a little bit farther than than is absolutely necessary, um, as if maybe we have something we're trying to prove. I'm not sure what psychological mechanism underlies that but definitely um i spent a lot of time just like really digging into my roots and lived in mexico and in and, and monterrey for uh mm-hmm. for a couple of years off and on um my wife was from monterrey um and just i don't know it just it was this really interesting um journey of discovery uh because i basically got really pissed off i was like 19 going on 20 um and i realized that public education in the state of texas had essentially like robbed me of of any kind of connection to my heritage and not only had it robbed me it had robbed my father it had robbed my grandfather and then schooling in mexico had uh, had robbed my great-grandparents in tamaulipas and back and back and back centuries like it like who do you get mad at who do you punch a quien le metes un chingazo right you know I mean, you, you know, it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a really tough situation. It's like little by little thing that happens that, you know, is what, what ends up creating, you know, systemic oppression, you know? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Just, yeah. It's, it's never like at, at all at once. It's always bit by bit, this erosion, this erosion, this erosion of your rights and your identity until you're, you're suddenly left to drift with nothing. It's kind of that poem you were talking about uh, where you mentioned your uncle got me thinking about like the 
the LA walkouts of, of 1968, you know, oh, yeah. that kind of like systemicness. And we're, we're seeing that happen right now. And before we dive into, you know, the politics of systemic racism and what our current state is and, you know, ideas on that, I want to ask you a quick side question and then we can pivot uh -huh. uh, on the idea of like history and ancestry. Have you done an ancestry DNA test? Uh, 23 and me thing like yeah 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 it's, it's, several of us in my family did just to like to get a feel for it i mean and 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 you know for somebody who is as interested in um the indigenous present and past of mexico i, I mean it, I, it's kind of disappointing to only be like eight percent but at the at the end of the day you know it's misty sake man you know yeah. light-skinned um maybe like overwhelmingly European, Mexican-Americans on one side, you know, a mishmash of European on the other side, it's, it gets attenuated in me. And, but, but that's true of, you know, people living in Mexico. I mean, it's one of the things that I was, you know, that I've been talking about on Twitter is, you know, there are plenty of largely European people who are Mexican citizens, uh, whose families have lived for centuries there, who haven't really mixed in with the, 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 the darker, browner, more like you know, la gente morena, la gente indígena, los Afro, los Afro Mexicanos, and have you know. So if you come from Mexico, that's why it's important to understand that there's like that being Mexican American. It it's racialized the United States, but I prefer not to look at it that way. To me, it's it's an ethnic or cultural identity. Being Mexican American, what joins us together are. Our, our cultural or ethnic, uh, bo uh, you know, bonds. I have plenty of friends. I have a brother, uh, Fernando, who is um, Afro-Mexicano. He's he's an, he's a black Mexican, a blackican, as he says sometimes. <laughs> and um, you know, we have a variety of things. Like you can have brothers and sisters and cousins like going together somewhere, and there's going to be like this wide range of tonalities, and um, you know, it's an um, it's an important thing to to keep in mind that um, that that exists, that that whiteness exists, and and um, it, it's it's an, it's a, a part of many of our identities. Yeah, I think you hit the nail sure. on the head. Like, it's a cultural thing because you know that country got colonized and conquered and invaded and imported by so many different that yep, you know, yep. los Mexicanos son una mezcla. Right, yep. you know, we are a mix of of genetics, but it's the culture that brings us together. And 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 at, at the same time that that is true, it's also true that among that that mixture, there are still people who are largely indigenous. There are still completely indigenous communities in Mexico. There are Nahua communities. There are Zapotec communities. I, I have a house on the coast of Oaxaca in. Una comunidad zapoteca, un, así, una aldea zapoteca donde hay como 20 familias. And if you want a piece of land there, you have to go to the heads of the families and explain to them why you would make a good neighbor and stuff like that. So there are communities still there. And, and then also in Oaxaca, you go down to the Costa Chica, there are entire fishing villages that are Afro, they're, all of them are Afro-Mexicanos. And so um, it's, I mean, there's simultaneously like a kind of an overwhelming like or maybe a majority that are kind of like this weird mestizaje that they don't know what indigenous background they really have 
but we can't pretend like that's the only Mexican identity. That's where a lot of the troubles nowadays come from. When people saying, oh, there's no racism in Mexico because we're all mestizos. Some of us are just lighter and some of us are darker. And you're like, no, motherfucker, it's not that easy. It's, it's much more complex than that. Yeah, I, I, used to, I used to live in Veracruz. And, ah, uh, we did mucha gente in negra in Veracruz, sí. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, they would say that, uh, one of my friends said that Veracruzanos were uh, gente mole because they were made with a lot of different chiles. <laughs> anyway, but as long um, as the Veracruzanos themselves are fine with that, I I I, I think it's cute. Yeah, that's how you if they it. don't like it, then I wouldn't. Yeah, okay, good, right? Yeah, uh, I never said that to anybody, but yeah, he yeah. told me. Um, but in Oaxaca is known as being a state where there's more people who speak speak uh, indigenous dialect than those who speak Spanish. Mm -hmm. Yep, and it's a really really rich place. Like what you call um, um, you know gente indígena uh, or um, sometimes, you know, the, you know, Indio, which would be derogatory. Um, but I want to talk more about language because you, uh, you speak or you write in, in Nahuatl. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I guess you kind of answered where that came from, but what are some of the, I guess, the poetics of, of the language or what, what, what could, could it bring, uh, what kind of richness does it bring to your work? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the really cool things about um, Nautil poetics, um, I mean, one of it is like the language itself is has these wonderful mechanisms for constructing words that are maybe even like the like a, an entire poetic line um, because the it's a, an agglutinating language, so you're able to like bring all these things, um, all these different components together to create like really, really long words and, and be very fanciful and poetic. And, and a lot of um, Aztec poetry contains that sort of stuff. They have um, lots of very novel words that are being made up by the poet. Sometimes you kind of get the feeling that on the spot, they're, they're creating these new words. Um, then you also have this this these ecstatic noises that are made um one of the interesting so we have there are two codices that that contain all of the pre the pre-columbian or colonial era um Nahuatl poetry about 120 poems altogether 120 um the the songs because i guess they weren't they didn't have a writing system, so they didn't like write them down. They were recited and sung and learned, you know, passed mind to mind over the generations. Um, but if you can imagine like a Michael Jackson song, imagine um, you were to get like somebody who's like, sing Billie Jean to me, right? And, and they're singing and they're doing all the, oh, ooh, ah, and you're transcribing the words and you're transcribing the ah and oh and stuff like that. That's essentially what has what happened in these codices because um, they were Franciscan priest uh, who would send people out into the community to say have them sing the songs to you write them down we want to you know keep as many of these as possible um, so there's a lot of that a lot of these what are called ecstatic vocables um, just kind of like shouts from the spirit cries of the heart to the gods or whatever um, and then just like thematic like a lot of the imagery um, the flower is such a prevalent um, image and it can represent so many things because a flower is beautiful but it's also fragile and it um, doesn't last very long it's it's its existence is fleeting it's often taken to represent friendship 
because of course um the the majority of these uh cuicatl or written or composed by men who were warriors noblemen who were warriors who would go off to battle and believe that dying in battle was a sure way to get into the paradise of the sun right the the house of the sun in the east so they saw it as something that you should aspire to but simultaneously it was something that meant that you were going to leave behind your friends your companions and that was a really hard thing to grapple with so the songs were uh, like flowers but also your friends were like flowers and so there's lots of uh, playing around with that idea of the fleeting uh, nature of friendship and why you have to savor it now because tomorrow on the battlefield you may be you know you may be um reaped by we'd see lopochli and you know taken into the house of the sun in the east it's it's this is really interesting tension and a lot of people, when they think about, you know, Aztecs, they think about, you know, bloodthirsty, sacrificing on the pyramids, stuff like that. But a lot of the poetry is just so very human, so very, like, I, people tell me that after death, there's this paradise that awaits me, but we don't really know. Maybe I'm going to die, and maybe I'll be in no place, and that's horrible. I, I love my life. I love my friends. Um, and see all of these really thematic things like connect to me really, really deeply. Um, the, the poetics itself, like the rhythms and, and rhymes and so forth, the rhyme schemes, if you can call them that don't work in English very well. So there's not a lot of influence there, but definitely thematically. And in terms of uh, maybe just like playing around with certain types of metaphors, because Nauta is also a very metaphorical language. They use, um, what have um they're they're kind of like kennings um they're we call them difrasismos that where they use two different words like the very word for poetry is in which means the flower the song sometimes they run together depending on um what dialect you're using and um that's where the name for flower song press came from poetry is flower song yeah it's an interesting point you bring up, and I'm curious because, you know, full disclosure, you're the first translator I've ever had a conversation with. Um, and, uh, you know, it's kind of like, take Don Quixote, right? There are fantastic translations of Don Quixote, but like nothing compares to reading it in its original language. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, so as a translator, how much liberty do you have to take uh, to like, get the essence of the, the text across, and also how many horribly, vehemently angry conversations have you had with other translators who didn't <laughs> you know how to do it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that drove me to start studying um, classical Nahuatl, because let's be clear, the, the language that I have studied for 10 years and that I translate from and that sometimes I write in because I've, I, I write some original poetry in Nahuatl as well is classical Nahuatl, um, the language as it was spoken 500 years ago. And there are many varieties of Nahuatl today that I don't really understand. I will catch make 40, 50% of, of what's written in them. And I am not like, I can't, I'm not going to be holding a conversation with any time, anybody anytime soon, because there are not a lot of people out there that have studied classical novel. Um, but the translating from it requires you to be like a co, a co-recreator of the song. 
uh, of the poem. There's just, there's no way for you to render into English and have it be as beautiful for the, your normal reader of English poetry, uh, what is written in, in Novelton. And so what used to get me upset was I would see like a couple of different things happening. First of all, I would the like some of the the first translations I came across in English were translated by like anthropologists or archaeologists or or just like linguists, and they were like straight dry calcs of the 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 lines, just telling you literally what they say. Um, no music, no no rhythm, just a straight calc of what's being said, which is fine for just comprehension, but terribly unsatisfying in terms of like if you if you like to like read poetry and really get into it and 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 then other poems like tried to be more poetic but often what they would do is like, leave a bunch of Nauta words untranslated and take that kind of tact of like making it they want to like make it feel like really aztec -y. and to me that's exoticizing like the, when when an Aztec was listening to the poem in Nahuatl, he wasn't like, oh, listen to these, you know, um, these great words in our language. They were just enjoying the emotion, the movement of the poem. And, um, and so, you know, your job, I think, as a translator of poetry is to recreate in a modern audience as, as close as you can the feeling that, a, you know, somebody 500 years ago would have had. And you can't recreate it perfectly. So it's, it's, it's always... Um, you know, there's that 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 great uh, you know uh, saying that the, the translator is a traitor, right? You're betraying the text to some extent. But if you are a poet as well as a translator, then what you're doing is you're creating a poem in your in your language, in the target language, that that has the soul of the original. Okay, it's like you you it's reincarnated in the flesh that you've created for it. Um, some people will find that really unappealing. But I find it like just super invigorating because when it when it happens when when you do it well, um, it's it's this really exciting thing. And and my first book of translation, Flower Song Dance, um, you know, won a translation award from the Texas Institute of Letters and so forth. And that was that was a really rewarding thing to like get up in front of um, these people. A lot of them like you know older white people from um, North and, and East Texas, and read these Aztec these Mexica poems to them and have them like go oh my god these people had beautiful sentiments and like they were deeply human and and cared about the same things that i do and i was like yeah motherfuckers what did you think that they were like monsters or something yeah, yeah. so that's what's rewarding because the majority of people are not going to learn now until they read those and so that part of it is is reserved for a very small number of people who 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 have the privilege and the time and resources to study the language. Um, yeah, well, is there a name for that kind of construction? The one you talked about where you thought it was kind of like um, fetishizing or, or, or where it was like they used Exactly. They, they the yeah, they're it's Yeah, they're exoticizing the. Exoticizing. But yeah. Is there a word for it? The reason why I'm asking there's a word for it is because the same thing happened in uh, in the Bible. And the New Testament, when they translate the gospel, there are some parts of it that are still in Aramaic, like uh, Talitha Kum, you know, Little Girl Get Up, or uh, the Golgotha, the, the place of the skull. Those are actually Aramaic. They're not Greek. They're not Greek, they yeah. They kept the original language or whatever. 
and they're called targums. Um, so I didn't know if there was like a, a similar word. And there, but the, the interesting thing I think is that this is the, the switch is that instead of it exoticizing the Aramaic, uh, it seems that people are people think well the reason why that was kept is because that was important, and uh, that may or may not have it's, it's more probability that that was the actual words of Christ of right. Jesus or whatever because he was he was he wasn't speaking Koine Greek he was speaking Aramaic right, right. yeah yeah um, yeah and I mean that kind of thing makes sense but like think about the context of of the writing of the Gospels you have people you know years after Christ has has, has died um, who are like oh like everybody who was around when when he was preaching is getting ready to pass away we need to like write this stuff down um we need to put his words to paper um instead of just like repeating them and remembering them um and so they start writing them down and by that time a lot of the the his followers speak latin and greek and so forth because we're talking decades right um the um I'm looking at it from a non-Christian perspective, by the way. So um, it's, you know, the gospels are, are written decades after his, his death and, um, and they're written down in Greek. And so people are remembering snatches of things that were said in the original language and they're putting it down. When that's, that's one thing, right? Written in Greek with snatches of Aramaic, that would be like if the poems were written in Nahuatl with snatches of Otomi, or some other, you know, or, or Chichimeca or something like that. Um, but when you translate it into English, when you translate the Bible into English, do you keep the phrases in Aramaic still in Aramaic? Um, or do you translate them like you translate the Greek? These are, these are difficult decisions to make. A place name, you're going to leave the same. You know, why would you, why would I translate Quatepec, um, which means the Snake Hill? Why would I make it Snake Hill? You know, uh, why would I translate the, why would I translate the name of Huitzilopochtli to Southern Hummingbird or left, or left-handed Hummingbird instead of just calling him Huitzilopochtli? It seems there's, there's like a, you've got to make decisions, you know, I've, you know, left-handed Hummingbird was on Snake Mountain. It just, I don't know. To me, that's, that takes it too far. Like you just don't translate names and i'm sure people would probably prefer like a lot of english speakers would prefer it because Nahuatl names are hard to pronounce <laughs> if you don't speak Nahuatl or spanish what do you call the state bird of texas what do i call the state bird of texas yeah like what do you personally refer to it as oh, what is the state bird of texas oh, I forget. <laughs> what is it <laughs> it's the mockingbird um, a mockingbird the sensotli yeah, yeah that's what i'm that's what i'm thinking it's like this is a conversation I had somebody earlier, I think last week, about how boring English is with regards to birds. They saw a blackbird, they call it blackbird, they call it bluebird. This is the mockingbird, there's a redbird, you know. And, and, and in, in uh, the, the name that I prefer, I, I don't like saying mockingbird because it's kind of, I think it's rude to the mockingbird, you know. Um, so Sensotle, though, is, comes from from the Nahuatl, right? It comes from Nahuatl, yeah. And it means something different. Right. Well, it means it means it means means possessor of four hundred. Yeah. Four hundred what? Four hundred voices. Four hundred voices. Yeah. Songs. So uh, it just it just means, uh, literally the word the the word means possessor of four hundred, and the the assumption is it's four hundred voices, four hundred songs, whatever, right? Um, so um, 
like can you imagine if you translated that from Naruto? like if if we didn't have the word mockingbird and somebody was like oh shit we got to translate the name of that bird um what is it in in, in Naruto? And, and, and you're like oh okay um 400 possessor um haver 400 haver yeah it does it does but the but we hear it differently than a than a Naruto speaker 500 years ago would hear it oh, because yeah. they would hear in to them they would be hearing a kind of frankly just boring rudimentary name like there's nothing magical there's this, it sounds magical but there's nothing magical about the meaning just it's, it's very and i mean that's what that's what, like what i'm talking about you would see go at that or we say quetzalcoatl and it sounds like ooh quetzalcoatl but it's just feathered serpent it just means it literally means it literally like it's literally quetzal snake a quetzal snake what's a quetzal it's a bird with like beautiful plumage right a quetzal snake but there's so, like much, to them, there's so much more story and so much more richness in the name. You know? Oh, I would, that's why I would never want to translate it. Quetzal snake or, I mean, feathered serpent is a slightly more elegant way of putting it. And like, I have a book that's titled feathered serpent, dark heart of sky. Um, because there are so many, you know, different languages in which Quetzalcoatl is called something akin to feathered serpent. Kukulkan, Gugumuts depending on you know what dialect of Maya you're talking about or what like Mayan language you're talking about. I want to get back to the publishing thing a little bit. Yeah. Um, and Vincent Cooper, I think he was on. I don't know if he's still on. Ya se rajó el pinche Vicente. Before we pivot, though, I just want to point out that this conversation is exactly why the show is called Words and Shit, because we're going to talk about words, and we're going to talk about all sorts of shit, including birds. And yeah. that, and uh, I think this has been phenomenally educated. But not Vincent Cooper. Vincent Cooper, not you know. Vincent Cooper. Sure. Vincent Cooper is. He's gonna. Um, dude, you better get back on, Benny. I'm just <laughs> telling you. I think he might. He might still be here. I don't know. But right. anyway, he better. If I'm sorry, if Eddie is leading me astray, and you actually are listening to me, then I apologize, Carnal. Yes, I was good to kiddo. Don't worry about it. But we asked him a very similar question because of his name about getting published as a, as a Chicano mm-hmm. um, with a last name that isn't what people normally think of Chicanos. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I did um, a list. I, I need to, like, share it again. I did a list on Twitter um, because somebody, like, <laughs> I was, like, on a panel, and somebody's like, there's not a single Latino, Latinx person on the panel. And I'm like, I'm Mexican-American. And then I was like, you know what? Let's talk about this. Let's talk about the fact that you don't have to have a Spanish surname to, to be, um, you know, to be Latinx. There are, you know, the entire, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but like the entire country of Argentina doesn't have Spanish surnames, <laughs> like all like Italian and German surnames, whatever. Um, it, yeah. People's identities are complex and you, you know, like neither Vinny nor I should have to like be explained to anybody why our last names are not, you know, Garza or, Betis or Cervantes or whatever it happens to be. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, people do ask the question, you know, why are you writing about this? Because it's my culture. Um, I mean, Ruben, and, even in music, like Ruben Blades has come out and said, like, I per, like prefer my name to be Ruben Blades, not Ruben Blades. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it, the name does not pin the history or the story, right? Sure, sure. But and, and on Twitter I came up with a list of like two hundred and something authors. 
uh, Latinx authors to have last names that are not Spanish. Um, it's just the way it is. We've got French last names, German last names, Chinese last names, Japanese last names. Um, Mexico City, 50 years after the conquest, already had a Chinatown. They had a huge Filipino population, Chinese, Indian. Um, there are, you know, that is interwoven into the very DNA of the Mexican culture, especially from the Defe. Um, and like pretending that you have to have a Spanish surname to be a legit like Chicano, that's kind of unfortunate. Yeah. 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 Let's talk about publishing. You know, mm -hmm. because in poetry, I mean, you said it earlier, you get published where you can't, right? Yeah, yes. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's such a different beast. Uh, this past year, uh, AWP was here in San Antonio and I sat in on a panel about publishing and 15 minutes into it, clearly it was a panel about fiction writers publishing. And I was like, this is not the kind of beast that poetry publishing is. Yep. Uh, Talk a little bit about like your experience in publishing and like indie publishing versus like the big five publishing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think it's easier to publish poetry um, in through an indie press. I think that there's there's more satisfaction to doing it that way. Anyway, you have greater control, and as a poet, you want to. Poetry is can't be edited in the same way that prose can. When I am, you know, I've got books coming out from HarperCollins and Penguin Random House. And when I'm working with editors at those like big five um, on a fiction novel, I mean, they get in there and you know, they tear out the guts and like, you know, I get manuscripts all marked up, whatever. And, and we do like a deep dive into, into rewriting prose um, because they're marketing it to a much larger audience and it needs to, you know, it needs to, um, to fit certain market trends and so forth because they're investing a lot of money. They're paying me like a nice advance and blah, 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 blah. So yes, that's a different story. Poetry is a much more intimate personal thing and you can't work with an editor in that same way. Like it, they can't be like, they can't be screwing, screwing around with your shit that way. And an indie editor of a, of a small press is going to understand that or an editor at like a university press, they're looking to enhance your voice to maybe make your lines like sing a little bit more clearly um, where, you know, because we all have those moments where like everything else in the poem works except that the one line that we just can't get right. And sometimes another person stepping in and saying, why don't you try this rearrange? Like I, I remember having Carmen Tafoya um, edit a poem of mine one time where she was literally, if you take these two lines and move them up to this stanza and then displace those lines down here, and I was like, what? And then I tried it and she was totally right. So sometimes it's all it takes. Um, and it, small presses, indie presses, they can do that. And poetry, because it's so performative, because you, 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 you usually want to get up and read it, lends itself, you know, smaller books, you could schlep them around, um, sell them um, at, at those venues. Um, and there are some really, really fantastic indie presses out there, you know, like Aslan Libre Press, um, Cinco Puntos, Arte Publico, Flower Song, there's th lots of like little um, Broken River, like all these little presses out there that will very carefully and in a loving way um, work with you to produce something that you're going to be proud of. Um, because no matter who publishes your poetry book, you're not going to sell a whole lot of copies. So like you can't, like, 
because it's poetry, guys. I, I mean, especially if we're talking about poetry for adults like this, Shattering and, and Bricolage, um, before, before it was quoted on Criminal Minds, like, like so, una baba. Gané una baba con este pinche libro, right? It's like, yeah. But, um, and this is one of the things that I, I've, I told Edward Vidal, right? if you if you're a poet, and you want to keep writing poetry, but you also like want to make some money, write a novel in verse for teens. That shit is, is in right now. Um, a novel in voice, a novel in verse written by um, like a Chicana, you know, grappling with, you know, you know telling the story of a, of a young Latina's life, coming of age, blah, 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 blah. You'll have agents knocking on your door. You'll sell that and you'll make money on it. So if you're a poet and you want to make money, on the side, think about writing for younger people. They Call Me Güero has sold like nearly 50,000 copies. Uh, it's, I mean, I guess it's a blessing. It's a wonderful thing. You don't usually sell that many copies of the book. When it was published, um, Cinco Puntos was like, oh, so how many, how many copies of this should we uh, print? Normally, a poetry book, they'll print like a thousand copies. And they'll be lucky if they sell that over the course of like two or three years, right? So like, well, let's let's print, you know, 3,000, like a thousand hardcover, 2,000 um, uh, paperback. It's, they sold out like in a month. And they had, it's like already on its fifth printing. Um, because writing for young people, writing the stories that these young people need to hear in verse, giving them a voice, give, letting them see themselves as poets. There's, there's a need for that kind of thing. Um, writing our more traditional poetry, that's for uh, a more sophisticated adult audience. Um, that, that adult audience is pretty sophisticated and it's pretty small. And a lot of the people that are into reading poetry are poets themselves. And so it's, it's, it's a complicated thing. And you're much better off going with the small press than trying to, to get, like, I don't know, Penguin to buy your poetry manuscript because they're not going to buy your poetry manuscript. How do you write differently to an audience of young people than is to uh, the adult audience? I mean, well, yeah, well, I mean, word choice, of course, but. Well, sure. I mean, there's word choice, but there's also like content choice. And like, you know, you have to, like when you're writing for like a middle grade audience, like upper elementary and middle school, like the things that they're concerned about, the journey that they're going through, it's not like an internal journey. It's not all like angsty and interiorized. It's like trying to fit into the larger society um, and they'll have, they have lots of mentors and, and people helping them out, whatever. So when you, when you write for them, you have to take that into account. You have to think about their psychology and, the, and you know, what's developmentally appropriate for them, I guess you could say. Uh, writing for teens is a little bit more like writing for adults, like writing for high school students. Um, like um, The Poet X by, by Liz Acevedo, an, an incredible YA novel in verse that and she and I, because we won a lot of the same awards, but just like I got the middle grade and she got the YA, we were in a lot of the same places. Um, last year, and I got to hear her read a lot of that stuff. And that poetry, that will that resonates with adults just as well as it does with with kids. So, um, writing for teens, I think, is a little bit closer, but still, the, the language it tends to be different. It tends to be obviously more narrative. Um, it's not a lot of like dense, obscure, you know, yeah, and you know, it's its own beast. And I yeah, it is totally just the one privileged time that I had the chance to go to AWP, there were, you know, like a ton of panels on like writing for young adults, right? Because it's such a, such a 
unique group, unique audience, right? That requires mm -hmm. its own kind of crafting and attention. And, uh, you know, if we had uh, three more hours, I feel like we could sit here and pick your brain and just get a free masterclass <laughs> on writing it. Um, I feel like this past hour has really felt like a masterclass uh, in so many different genres. You really have imparted so much wisdom. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, a lot of different topics. Uh, there are things on my list that we, didn't get, we, we ain't gonna get to. <laughs> yeah, that is invariably what happens with me. I just, uh, I will, I definitely like take off with a question and run with it for <laughs> 15, 20 minutes. So apologies there. No, and I think we are fortunate and blessed because of it. So yeah, well, that's very kind of you to say. Really appreciate you and the time that you've spent with us. Um, any, any, any last words? <laughs> No, no. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, there were, I, I, had, I had a whole list. I don't have it on my piece of paper like you did. Um, it's kind of scribbled, and it's also on my head. And uh, yeah, I wish we could maybe do like a debate show where they have like the one conversation and then they have the other conversation that they publish later. Okay. We want to work on that, but we we don't have a lot of time. All I could say is I'll come back anytime you guys want me to, and we'll chat more. Don't worry about it. I'm I'm down for it whenever. I love it. This has been, I think, a very enlightening conversation for a lot of people. I think you've definitely provoked a lot of thought that people are going to have to go back and ruminate on and really digest um, because of your history and the different um, genres that you navigate. Uh, you really have brought a, a fantastic voice to this show and this conversation. We appreciate you being here, David. Uh, Thank you so much, man. It would be our privilege if you would close this out with one more poem. Sure. I'm going to read something that I haven't read in a very long time from, uh, from um, Shattering and Bricolage called Rhyme Ran to Rap. Rhyme Ran to Rap nudged roughly by Milton, slanting along Dickinson's tongue, taking the road less traveled by smug-faced, black-clad elitists. Rhyme ran to rap, hustling through the Harlem Renaissance, tapping her feet to bluesy, gospel-soaked jazz while chanting hymns in blessed stupor. Rhyme ran to rap, skipping rope and laying the dozens on beatniks and hippies who smirked at her childish antics, cause posy ain't music. Rhyme ran to rap on platform shoes, spinning vinyl late into the night, climbing with funky steps that sugar hill. Rhyme ran to rap and danced for a time on a hustler's lap, then slung Billingsgate at sucker MCs, grabbed guns aimed straight for Luck's bum knee, stuttered thundering from the lips of thugs, slipped fluttering down breast hips and bums till she evolved into a dreadlocked muse who inspired bards of all creeds and hues to embark on a lyrical hero's trek that could lift their gifts from the streets and protect the legacy of the human race preserved in words that can't be erased because their sounds burrow deep in every mind encoding our struggle and a weft of rhyme. Gracias, que les vaya muy bien. Thank you, thank you, thank you once again. It's your David Bolo coming out, coming to us from Donna, Texas. <laughs> Doneños. Dominan. I'm not. Let me just clarify. Where exactly near is what Donna? Where? Who? You know. Donna. Donna is be like between McAllen and Harlingen. Oh, okay. Yeah, halfway between McAllen and Harlingen. 
I'm I'm a fake Rio Grande Valley person because I grew up. You're in from Laredo, Laredo. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. I, but I love Laredo. Laredo's great, man. You guys take care. It was, it was a pleasure chatting with you. David, before before you leave us, uh, uh-huh. somebody wants to find your work besides Barnes and Noble. <laughs> yeah. Man, go go to my website davidbulls.us. I've got tons of poetry that's been like published online, like linked there. You can find um, uh, links to short stories, to translations, to all kinds of stuff, um, and links to my different books and, and medium articles that, as uh, Eddie was talking about. Awesome, David Bowles. Follow you on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter at David O Bowles. You will not be disappointed because I. Oh man, I, I I do some crazy shit on that on that site. So come come follow me. I'm gonna don't don't bother with Facebook. Facebook sucks. Somebody mentioned that in the comments. Actually, they said they love to see you on Twitter and so to read you on Twitter and everything that you give to them. That you're free education. Uh, I I want Twitter to be a beautiful place where people can learn um, wonderful things and um, and we can like talk smack about the losers who don't see it that way. Eddie and I were talking earlier and he was like, but have you seen his Twitter feed lately? And I was like, oh, this is going to be a good conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Man, we didn't get to the stuff that, but yeah, no, we'll, I will come back. I'm sure that you'll, we can have a special edition. Part two. Yeah. yeah, part two, part two with El Chingon. <laughs> Nos vemos. Bye. Thank you so much Thank for you. joining us. Eddie, hey, Jimmy, what's, what's next week? Next week. It's one of my, personally, one of my favorite people uh, in this world and one of the most accomplished uh, spoken word poets that, uh, of our generation, anyway, uh, Ebony Stewart, the one and only Gully Princess, is going to be joining us on Words and Shit the day before my birthday. So I'm going to take it as a birthday present to me, her presence here. That's awesome. Um, so I'm sure that's going to be a phenomenal conversation. Uh, so please tune back in. Thank you again, Eddie. Thank you, everybody in live or who's watching afterwards. You know, like, just thank you for being here and spending this time and keeping poetry alive. Um, my name is Chibi. That one's Eddie. That, that one's Eddie over there. Y'all stay safe. Good night. Good night.